0: Well, good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to LSE. My name's Stuart Corbridge. I'm the head of the Development Studies Institute here, and it's a great pleasure to invite you to this talk on the modern Commonwealth, challenges in the 21st century. Those of you that know the Secretary-General of the Commonwealth will know that he's not, in fact, sitting next to me. Uh, Unfortunately, Don McKinnon has lost his voice Uh, This is entirely to be understood, I think. Some of you will know that he was on Start the Week this morning. He's been very heavily involved with discussions around Pakistan in particular, and he's in preparation for the Commonwealth Head of Governments meeting, which is coming up soon in Kampala. So he he sends his apologies, but he also sends us uh, Matthew Newhouse, who is sitting next to me, who is the Director of the Political Affairs Division, of the Commonwealth Secretariat, and who is the Chief Political adviser to the Secretary-General. So I believe that the talk that we're going to have tonight is substantially the same talk uh, as the talk that Don McKinnon would have given us. Matthew Newhouse, by training, is a lawyer with academic training, also in international relations. He has a long and distinguished career as a public servant, particularly in Australia, Also for Australia, he was at the end of the 1990s the Australian High Commissioner in Nigeria. Uh, For the past five years, Matthew has been working for the Commonwealth Secretariat. And I'm very pleased that you've stood in really at the the last minute uh, for both the audience, myself and uh, for Don McKinnon, uh, that you've agreed to give this talk on the modern Commonwealth challenges in the 21st century. So thank you very much, Matthew.
1: Well thank you very much Professor Borbridge, and it's very good to to be here um, and to see some uh, friends in the audience I hope they're not going to uh, ask some very tricky questions later but I should start again by reiterating the Secretary General's uh, apologies he really did want to be here tonight Um, it's been a distinguished list of speakers you have had in this series, and we were honoured that the Commonwealth was also chosen. It was a very bad day for him to lose his voice, not just because of of this occasion, but also we've been having today the meeting of the Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group, focusing on latest developments in Pakistan, and I will come to this at the end of my uh, talk. But, um, in fact, I left while the meeting was still going on, Um, although I think I have a good idea of the outcome and may have the very latest um, at the end of this talk but uh, I'm afraid it will be going live on BBC, the the press conference uh, at the same time as we are uh, meeting here but thank you for giving me your attention and for coming here to hear about the Commonwealth on the eve of our heads of government meeting in Kampala now I will be speaking from the Secretary General's address. I'll try and fix it for all the eyes and so forth through, but I may slip up from time to time. It's not laissez-majeste if I do, in fact, uh, slip into uh, uh, using Don McKinnon in the first person. But let me start with his address, which is on the modern Commonwealth. And as Don was going to say, we're prepared to admit that there are more than enough individuals in this country and beyond who would call that a contradiction in terms. Indeed, there are some who think that rather like the Marxist state, the Commonwealth by now should have withered away. So perhaps the first challenge of the modern Commonwealth is to dispel the myths that continue to surround it. It's just the British Commonwealth, people say, I've noticed in press reports this week, a lot of the formerly British Commonwealth. In fact, the British Commonwealth died in 1949 with India's independence and a new union of what were defined as freely and equally associated states. We are, in a large part, former colonies, but we're all proudly independent today and with equal votes and we're not just British in our roots. We include five former German territories, Eight French speaking countries, and one Lusophone, with a country like Mozambique already a member for ten years, and another, Rwanda, knocking on the door. Go back further, of course, and you find our members with histories dating back long before colonisation. India, of course, comes to mind. It's just a talking shop, people say, with no teeth. Well, its power is the power of moral authority and not of legal, statute, or army battalions, what some call soft power. Its teeth are sharp enough to suspend members and hard-wearing enough to grind away until we achieve the change and standards we're looking for. And Pakistan is very much in our sights at the present time. And as for talking, not only is that part of the very strength of our network, but it is also the precursor to our action with commonwealth experts and advisers on the ground doing good and bettering lives it's just the commonwealth games people say and congratulations to glasgow this week we are very proud of what we are known as the friendly games and for sure they are one of the most visible manifestations of our commonwealth but the commonwealth games federation is just one of nearly 90 organisations and associations worldwide that make up the very special network that is the Commonwealth. So somehow, these 53 countries and 1.8 billion people, a third of the world's population, a quarter of its countries and a fifth of its trade, countries rich and poor, large and small, and home to people of every colour and creed, all too often get this sort of summary dismissal. That's why, in accepting this invitation to address the LSE today, we're moved to dispel a few myths and start by telling you what the modern Commonwealth actually is before we speak about the challenges it faces in the 21st century. We are a richly diverse gathering of governments and of peoples across five continents and three oceans. It is from history that our association emerged but it is our shared values and goals that unite us. What we do can be summed up In two words, democracy and development. In policy work and practical assistance, all our energies go towards entrenching democracy and bringing about development, both economic and human. So we talk and we act. When we talk, the world listens. Just one example. In 1987, a Commonwealth Finance Minister's meeting first proposed the idea of bilateral debt relief and the world took up the idea and ran with it. This morning we were meeting with Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who was always very keen on on this issue and has been a great help on it. Ten years later, it was the Commonwealth which proposed the idea of multilateral debt relief, and again the idea took flight, once and for all at the G8 summit in Scotland two years ago. So a generation later, a Commonwealth idea has realised an estimated $100 billion of debt, relief for 30 or so of the world's poorest countries. The ideas and talk lead to action on the ground, too, with hundreds of Commonwealth people out there as I speak, training women, handicraft makers in Pakistan, training police officers in human rights in Sierra Leone, watching at polling booths in Kenya or Papua New Guinea, determining maritime boundaries in the Pacific, funding youth businesses in Guyana, and many, many more. Talk can change policy and lead to new plans and good results, but you have to start with talk. This, then, is the modern Commonwealth actively promoting democracy and development and making them happen. Turning to my theme today, what challenges does the modern Commonwealth face in the 21st century? What few words of advice would the Secretary-General give to his successor when this successor is elected in a fortnight's time at the Chogom in Kampala, Uganda. Before he took up this job, Don McKinnon talked about the need for the Commonwealth to be relevant and credible. Subjects, I might say, that were very much on our minds as we met this afternoon in CMAG. That hasn't changed But let me slice it even further. We must stay true to our values, stay responsive to what our members want of us, stay inclusive for the people who need us most and stay open to new members, new partners and to the part we must play alongside other actors on the global stage. No international organisation has an absolute right to exist and as the modern Commonwealth approaches its 60th birthday, it has no automatic guarantee that it won't be pensioned off into retirement. We always, in our modern world, have to keep proving ourselves. But if we stay true, responsive, inclusive and open, then, in the crowded world of international organisations, we stay relevant and credible. We earn our keep and we continue to deliver. I believe that we are already all of these things, so tonight's, I'm not going to suggest new departures. It is enough of a challenge to consolidate what we do and to do it better. It is these factors and these alone that will ensure that we are still here in 50 years' time, in 100 years' time. Let us say a little bit about each of these factors. First, then, the challenge of staying true to our values. It's easier said than done. Rhetoric does not always live up to reality. We set down our values in what were the then groundbreaking Commonwealth Declarations of 1971, the Singapore De- Declaration, and in 1991, the famously named Harari Declaration, when we committed ourselves to the fundamental values of freedom, democracy, and the rule of law. We have gone, gone further with what we call our Latimer House Principles of 2003, which define and differentiate the three pillars of government the legislature, the executive and the judiciary in the same way we are committed to human rights and especially to the 1966 UN Covenants one guaranteeing civil and political rights the other social and economic rights democracy and development again not only do we state these things but we have the capacity to enact them In 1995, we developed the Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group known as CMAG and made up of a rotating list of eight foreign ministers plus the foreign minister of the uh, country that holds the chairmanship of the Commonwealth at the time. It has the power to suspend or even recommend the expulsion of members who flout our rules. We put this group to immediate use in 1995 when our leaders suspended Nigeria following the execution of Ken Sarawira and ten others at the time of the Auckland Chogum. No other international organisation, even the United Nations, has teeth as sharp as that. Nigeria was suspended in 1995 and readmitted in 1999. And I must say, I was very pleased to be part of that process as Australian High Commissioner in Nigeria during that time. Others similarly suspended were Sierra Leone in 1997, Pakistan in 1999, Fiji in 2000 and again last year. While the Gambia has been on the group's agenda and Zimbabwe was suspended in 2002 and eventually decided to take itself out of the Commonwealth in December 2003. Interestingly, Sierra Leone's new democratically elected government in 1998 Asked that it remain on CMAG's agenda even after democracy was returned as it felt there was a further need for it to be there. That's the positive, not the punitive power of CMAG. And one point I would make at this is that every country that has been suspended eventually has returned to the fold. There have been many ups and downs and we have only one exception at the present time and that is Zimbabwe, which we continue to work for change in that country, because it's only when Zimbabwe is back with us that we will know that we have achieved sustainable change. Any politician will remind you of the dangers of hypocrisy in touting values and then not observing them. We have our fair share of such cases within the Commonwealth. Two countries are currently on our CMAG agenda Fiji, after the military overthrow of an elected civilian government last December. And Pakistan, arising from President Musharraf, also retaining the role of Army Chief of Staff. More on Pakistan later. Meanwhile, Bangladesh has had a caretaker government since January of this year, and we are watching that closely. And there are other Commonwealth countries which experience real political tensions. We observe elections, and we're frank about what we observe Sometimes they have serious flaws, as in Nigeria in April, and we, t- we say that in our reports, and then we work with the countries to address those flaws. It is hard to practice what you preach, and yet I believe we do so, and I challenge all members of the Commonwealth to continue to do so. We are right to take stands, just as we are right, having done so, to do everything we can to bring the erring countries back into the fold. <laughs> That is why we are talking to Commodore Bani Marama in Fiji about helping him to meet his promise to hold elections by the first quarter of 2009. Fiji may be suspended, but the dialogue with Fiji and the practical assistance to Fiji in order to bring about a democratic restoration is not. It's why the Secretary-General has kept pushing President uh, President Musharraf to honour his promise about taking off one of his two hats. And the Secretary-General and I actually went in September to Pakistan um, to discuss these matters with the President and we had, from his own mouth, certain undertakings given to us. The fact that we may not have seen those actually come to fruition is a different issue. It's also why the Secretary-General cautioned Bangladesh that they cannot drift without representation for too long. It is why, when we make what we hope is constructive criticism of an election, as we did in Nigeria this year, or Uganda last, we then work hard to address the deficiencies, strengthening independent electoral commissions, for instance, or improving voter registers. It's why we use the quiet diplomacy of special envoys in places like Swaziland, Kenya, Maldives, Tonga, Lesotho, Zanzibar, Cameroon, the Gambia, and Guyana, just to mention some of our engagements. In general, the results speak for themselves. We often say, for instance, that Commonwealth Africa is in good shape, with 11 Commonwealth African countries having made the transition to multi party democracy over the last 15 years. And it's worth remembering in the some 10 years or so uh, since the mid-90s that we've moved to a position where we do not have military dictatorships in any of our African countries, whereas that used to be seen as quite a disease um, on that continent. We often feel the perceptions of Africa in this country are therefore 10 to 50 years out of date The secret of proclaiming values is to conduct the quiet, painstaking work that shows you mean them. This is what we must continue to do. Take the one example of human rights where only 18 of our member countries have ratified those two UN covenants and we find that disappointing. We can shout from the rooftops as Don McKinnon has, much louder and more critically than others, I might say, including at the new Human Rights Council in Geneva in March. But behind all that is the practical work that makes it happen. We advise countries on how to meet the obligations of those two covenants. We have supported a network of Commonwealth National Human Rights Commissions, for instance, and we have developed a model national action plan for human rights. We have also given that practical human rights training for police in some 25 countries. That's the first challenge, to stay true to values in what we do and in what we say. The second challenge is to stay responsive to what our members expect of us and to what the world presents to us. I believe we have done so, but I believe too that we can never, ever afford to rest on our laurels. Yesterday's challenges are not today's, and what we do tomorrow is far more important than what we did yesterday. The Commonwealth has moved with the times. In its first incarnations, it was instrumental in supporting the move to independence of many British colonies. Indeed, India's stance in bringing about the modern rather than the British Commonwealth was in part designed to help other countries to follow in its footsteps and eight members in 1949 became 50 by 1989. In the 1980s the Commonwealth stood on the bridge between North and South advocating multilateralism in a changing world and it was the Commonwealth which did so much in the 80s and 90s to dismantle the system of apartheid in South Africa. We are always striving to stay one step ahead or if not ahead, then at very least on the pace. As I mentioned, in the late 80s and early 90s That meant the Commonwealth leading global thinking on debt relief. Having conceived the idea, we now lead on its implementation. Our special Commonwealth debt management software is in use in 44 of our own countries and in 10 others. It was the World Bank who advised China that they should use our software. In the 90s and early 2000s, the Commonwealth's far-sightedness meant shaking up the World Bank and the wider development community about the problems facing small states. With 32 of our 53 states having populations of less than 1.5 million, we have a special interest. So we prepared groundbreaking reports on small states' unique vulnerabilities and on the ways that they can build on their inbuilt resilience and diversify their economies. And we went into battle for small states, especially when we took on the OECD in 2000 about their proposed restrictions on small state financial centres and won. Meanwhile, over the last five years, as we saw more clearly the problems of developing country doctors, nurses and teachers migrating to the developing world and leaving little behind them, we developed Commonwealth recruitment protocols that seek to manage that flow at both ends. These protocols have now been adopted as international guidelines. Another example, and a very live example for us, of the Commonwealth's practical response to the issues of the day came in the wake of the UN Security Council's counter-terrorism Resolution 1373, The Commonwealth took this up with a new raft of counter-terrorism legislation which its members could enact in areas like money laundering and extradition procedures. And this was particularly important for many of our small states who really just did not have the capacity to, to put into place the legislation that was needed to comply with the UN resolution. So if we have moved so effectively with the times over the years, What are the contemporary challenges we have to meet now in 2007? And the Secretary-General would have wanted to set out four. First is the flip side of standing up to terrorism and violence. It is bringing about dialogue and peace. When our heads of government last met in Malta two years ago, they asked us to examine our rich diversity and share amongst each other and the wider world just what it is that binds Commonwealth societies together. The challenge is how to build communities transcending ethnic, religious, linguistic divides. We have always wanted harmonious communities that cross these divides, material, sexual and geographical. Just last Friday, a Commonwealth Commission chaired by Nobel laureate Professor Amartya Sen presented its new report on the subject called Civil Paths to Peace. The report tries to help us understand tensions before we try to resolve them. It calls on us to look beyond faith at the dynamics of all communities and at ourselves as individuals with many different identities. It also provides a language in which we can engage in this dialogue because often language gets in the way of such a dialogue and challengingly, and this is why it's called Civil Paths to Peace, it asks the question, where will military options take us? Are there alternatives for addressing extremism? And so the Commonwealth approach, we hope, will have an impact on the wider world. A second challenge, and we were talking to the Prime Minister today about it, is how the Commonwealth responds to the potential disaster of one of the global challenges of our times, climate change. It is real enough in the Commonwealth. We see its effects like shrinking rainforests exacerbated by unsustainable logging practices in Asia and the Pacific, like a thawing of the tundra in northern Canada, the encroaching desert in northern Nigeria, the flooded lowlands in Bangladesh, the islands of Maldives, Kiribati and Tuvalu, which are barely above the waterline, and indeed, very personally, because I've been spending a lot of time in Uganda lately, the Sinking Waters of Lake Victoria, which, as a young child, I played in. The Commonwealth first published a study on the subject in the late 80s. It was at a Chogham in the late 80s that the President of the Maldives first told the world that his islands were literally going underwater. In February this year, Commonwealth Environment Ministers met in Nairobi to agree a new Commonwealth-wide strategy to address climate change making the best use of our extensive (coughs) networks, as much of ministries and parliamentarians as of groups like geographers, foresters, statisticians and meteorologists. Commonwealth finance ministers meeting in Guyana in October proclaimed the need to bring climate considerations into every aspect of government policy and they also critically examined the economies and financial implications of climate change. So, we've heard from environment and finance ministers. At Chogam, we'll be expecting to hear from heads of government on climate change in the run-up to the UN conference on the subject in Bali in December. Why? Because a call from a quarter of the world's states is heard. It can affect how the whole international community moves on an issue. And we can bring together countries like Canada and Australia at one end of the spectrum, countries like Britain countries like the Maldives and India. A third challenge is that for the first time in human history more people are living in urban rather than rural areas. About 330 million people or one in six Commonwealth citizens live in slums. Our task is to build on what we call Habitat, which supports UN Habitat. A fourth challenge is to keep pushing for a global trade deal that truly protects and advances the economic opportunities of developing countries last time our heads of government met all 53 called on richer countries to have the courage to give more than they receive in the doha round we keep pushing at the policy level not least with some 30 or so commonwealth trade advisers worldwide sitting in national capitals advising countries from the africa caribbean and pacific regions as they negotiate their economic partnership agreements with the European Union. Meanwhile, our practical focus must be made in individual countries. If we are to trade in a fairer world without tariffs and subsidies, then we need to help make them ready to make the best of that. The answer lies in what we call aid for trade in the form of help we give so that developing countries that have new goods and services to offer have actually be allowed new trade opportunities. So, we have to stay true to our values and we have to stay responsive on the issues of the day. Thirdly, we need to remain inclusive to those who need us most. We live in a world still skewed towards the perspective of the adult male. Yet, it is important for the Commonwealth that all its citizens, rich and poor, male and female, young and old, healthy and unhealthy are included in our deliberations. Let us take young people. Nearly half of our Commonwealth is under 25 and nearly a quarter is under 5. Yet 70 million Commonwealth children have never seen the inside of a school and 150 million are out of work. Take women, count them up, and you reach 3 billion, half the population on this planet. Discount them and you reach the state we're in, where half of the people on this planet bear considerably more than half its problems. The figure is in fact two-thirds for girls out of school, those in poverty, those with AIDS. Take minority groups, take those made social outcasts by AIDS. These and so many other groups are what we mean by those who need us most. So the third challenge is that we keep up our good work for these people and we never lose sight of them. Hence the importance of our youth programmes 33 years old, with offices in four continents, which gives youth training, microcredit, and mentoring, rebuilding the shattered lives of war affected children in Sierra Leone or northern Uganda, and which works with governments to establish a young people's element in every aspect of government. And it may interest you to know on our Commonwealth observer groups, when we go off uh, election observing, we always include young people uh, amongst our groups. We are also working to make gender equality more of a reality. The Commonwealth and its member countries have already done the policy work to ensure gender is recognised as a com- component of all government policy. We have produced training manuals and capacity building programmes. And if this all sounds too theoretical, remember those Pakistani women trained in handicrafts, or the women beekeepers that we support in Malawi, or more importantly, the girl children who are being educated for greater things. And indeed, in some of our Commonwealth countries, countries like Uganda, we have a lot to learn from them about the uh, representation of women in Parliament. We are a Commonwealth which supports the poorer, the weaker and the smaller among us, whether countries or individuals. We must stay that way. Fourthly... We must stay open to new members, new partners and the part we must play alongside other actors on the global stage. The Commonwealth has to be dynamic and evolving as an organisation in a dynamic and evolving world. This is why it has grown fast although admittedly not in the last 10 years in quite the same way as it did in the 20 years preceding. The time may well have come for us to grow again the queue of potential new members gives a clue to the strength of the organisation of democratic values. Various times and in various ways we've had expressions of interest from Yemen, Algeria, Israel, the Palestinian Authority, Rwanda, Sudan, Timor-Leste, as well as the old British Somaliland and various dependent territories. A special Commonwealth committee chaired by former Jamaican Prime Minister P.J. Patterson we'll be reporting to our next Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Kampala, both on reaffirming the democratic values for would-be members and also the process that they will have to follow to become Commonwealth members. And so the focus increasingly will be on those shared values and perhaps less on the history um, that has bound us. Being open to the world means looking out on the world. We need to continue to build alliances with others. We know that very well on our own. We don't have the strength, the resources or the leverage to meet all our goals. Hence our willingness to see our ideas and expertise taken up and used by the World Bank, the World Health Organisation and the ILO with issues like migrating doctors and migrating teachers, the European Union and the African Union on building governance in Africa or the Pacific Islands Forum on building governance in the Pacific. Similarly, we must build on our partnerships with business, currently worth $5 and counting through the Commonwealth Private Investment Initiative. All these partnerships have real momentum, and there are no limits to how open we should be. I have spoken to the Chinese government, for instance, about their and our involvement in Africa. Being open means going further still. We often talk about the Commonwealth as an alliance of governments and peoples, Perhaps we are making needless distinctions here. Governments, after all, are representatives of the people and in democracies people have a say in how they are governed. Yet of course there are distinct things. Civil society organisations are some of the great amplifiers of the voice of normal people. Their task is to encourage, to comment, to challenge and to hold accountable. That is why we treasure the worldwide network of organisations around the world that bear the precious name Commonwealth. And in a people's forum at every Chogham now, our civil society meets. As I said, the Commonwealth Games Federation is one of the best known, but there are associations of our parliamentarians, business people, lawyers, journalists, and many, many more. And when we are meeting, as we did today in CMAG on an issue like Pakistan, representations come from so many of those bodies representing the people on the front line in the struggle for democracy. Not only do these organisations do great things in their own right, they also feed actively into our government work and priorities. So the challenge is to remain open to them all, new members, new partners. So to conclude, stay true, stay responsive, stay inclusive, stay open, and in doing so, stay relevant and credible. The challenges for the modern Commonwealth, the challenges that will remain for a new Secretary-General. I ask you, to whom did President Musharraf address his remarks in English on Saturday the 3rd of November, having announced a state of emergency to his own people in Urdu? He named three, the US, the EU and the Commonwealth. Clearly, he takes the Commonwealth seriously. Clearly, he does not want to be seen to be violating Commonwealth values even when he is. And so this afternoon, we convened an emergency meeting of the Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group on Pakistan. And that group has sent some very strong messages to Pakistan, some expectations, so that by the time we meet again at the end of next week in Kampala, we we need those expectations met. Otherwise, again, Pakistan will be in danger of being suspended from the Commonwealth. We don't want to have to take that step, but we must stay true to our values. Thank you all very much.
0: Thank you, Matthew. I should just say that tonight's talk is being uh, sponsored by the LSE Annual Fund. Uh, We're very grateful to them. It's money that's raised by LSE's alumni networks. Um, Matthew himself has to dash off very early in the morning to Kampala so I think we're aiming towards more like 7.30 than 8 depending on the number of questions uh, that we have and I think it would probably be best if we take questions in groups of 2 or 3 or 3 or 4 I can already see a couple of hands there Uh, I'll simply point to people whose hands I see and then the microphones I think will come down and then Matthew will uh, make a note and answer the questions in turn so there are two gentlemen here Already, take you to next. Um, Mr. Newhouse, thank you for that. Uh, I just wanted to ask you the question of whether you see real future potential in the Commonwealth in terms of, for example, a Commonwealth free trade area, or even a Commonwealth defence force, a sort of NATO arrangement in the future. You know, are you looking ahead in that sort of more visionary way?
2: Uh, I'm a human rights student here at LSE. I'm from Pakistan. Uh, To me, I think still, I'm very pleased to read your statements. In theory, and paper, what seems that for you, the democracy really means the free and transparent without the independence of judiciary in Pakistan and the musharraf the way he has dished the commonwealth like he was going to share the uniform and last 2004 and 3 and 15th of November and again you are still waiting for that one hand. So for me it seems that whatever the foreign policy the national interests of those dominant countries in the commonwealth are prevailing or the main principles of democracy, number one. Number two, mention that I don't see that the Commonwealth has any scope of alliances with the people, like in Pakistan or any, you I don't see any consultation with civil society regarding the human rights situations or the early warning disasters of the human rights because you are only connected with the government. So, do you see any?
3: change in that approach
0: one more. You one more. Yeah. this gentleman down the front then we'll come to a second round of, of questions
1: hi um, uh, Matthew Willam Solomon from South African newspaper business day um, first in terms of Pakistan is there any chance that Musharraf will be in attendance at the at the Chagam, and to what extent do you think the situation in Pakistan may overshadow the other development agenda which is the thrust of the conference the second is given that since Malta the um, Doha trade talks have be- become increasingly dead into an impasse how powerful has the Commonwealth been in driving those trade talks and is there in fact a coherent constituency well Thanks very much, um, and I'll I'll take the questions from from here. Um, Firstly, about the potential for a free trade area or a Commonwealth um, Defence Force. Actually, there is um, a paper going to this, Chogham, about greater economic cooperation between Commonwealth countries. But I'm I'm not sure that um, the economic realities of life um, lead us towards a free trade area. There was something many decades ago now, nearly a century ago, called Empire Preference in those days, which worked for them. But we live in a different world now of regional organisations and the WTO. So we tend to focus more on building those sorts of connections and, and helping with those connections. As for a, a defence force, no, I don't, and I don't even think that it would be a wise way of, of, of looking um, for, for the Commonwealth. We are not about um, uh, military um, alliances. Um, and indeed, it, I really refer you to this new work on civil paths to peace as to where the Commonwealth as an organisation um, should focus in, in that regard. But in terms of visionary, yes, we are looking with a, a visionary approach to the future for the sorts of support and needs that our that our countries have and I think climate change is one of the more visionary areas that we will be focusing on. Secondly on Pakistan um, it's certainly true that on the, in the whole Pakistan debate internationally certain dominant countries have been very influential. Whether that, that view prevails as such as the Commonwealth I'm not so sure, having just walked out of a quite active uh, debate um, in the CMAG which has representation from Africa, from Asia, from some of the smaller countries um, you could see that, uh, in, in, that in that environment um, the influence of those countries is actually quite significant and sometimes, sometimes ironically enough Sometimes the, the bigger powers find it quite useful for the Commonwealth to be seen to be taking even firmer action um, for them to have something to use in their own engagement with a government like Pakistan. I've been quite struck by that in discussions I've had on a regular basis in, in Washington. As for, uh, with the people and consultation with the people, let me assure you that, yes, we do have a very close uh, consultation with civil society groups in Pakistan particularly the Human Rights Commission and Asma Janjia and, and such people are people we speak to frequently. We speak to all the political um, parties as well. So it's not just governments that we speak to when we are um, in our member countries. In fact, in most of our good Offices activity, we're trying to bring government together with um, civil society with opposition groups to find a way ahead because often governments lose sight of the fact that they need the support of such groups to build sustainable democracies and that's as relevant in Pakistan as anywhere else um, with regard to President Musharraf attending Chogham no, um, there has been no plan for him to attend Chogham the, the plan had been for Prime Minister Shaukat Aziz Um, to be there. There were quite some reservations even that some leaders had about about him attending. At the present time Pakistan uh, as a country would still be able to attend. Um, If it moved to a suspension that would then uh, affect such attendance. Um, We'd hope um, we'd certainly be working for Pakistan not to overshadow other important issues at Chogham particularly the development and climate change uh, agenda. Um, but it, it probably will be uh, a major issue, particularly if President Musharraf does not respond to some of our demands. And to some extent, we perhaps are starting to see some first signs of some responsiveness, but, but let's see how that goes. On the Doha round, yes, I, uh, we're very disappointed with the way things have gone. Um, the Commonwealth as such can only have so much influence there, and its influence is through its member uh, countries, But I think one thing we have been able to do and will continue to do is to provide real assistance to the smaller countries at the WTO so that their voices can be heard and so they can have some technical advice in, uh, that allows them to contribute in a meaningful way to the uh, discussions. And we're not giving up on it. Once again, this was a major subject of our discussion with Prime Minister Brown this morning.
0: Move to a second round of questions. Uh, gentleman down here. Gentleman in the middle.
3: Hi. I'd like to just ask some questions about uh, Cameroon. sort of closed over it in your, in your remarks. I'm sure you're aware of the it's a, it's a unification between two formal trust territories. one one under UK administration and under French administration, and the the part formerly under UK administration is at the moment currently seeking autonomy and self-government from the current state as as it is. Is that something the Commonwealth supports, sort of being that the country's membership is predicated on on it being a a formal trust territory? And secondly, about about the, the elections process in the country in general. The elections independent body, which, is, which has which just not yet been set up, I'm just wondering if something the the, the Commonwealth is working with the government about.
0: Gentleman in the middle with the black waistcoat.
4: And actually, I. question. I think one of the characteristics of Commonwealth is the involvement the active involvement of civil society in processes which produce and define the, the values of which the Commonwealth um, I would like to ask Matthew actually about the, the membership question um, I know he's not going the Patterson Report obviously will be confidential <laughs> until um, until uh, Chogham but <coughs> This question of... Def- I mean, I, I think something that may puzzle people who are not, perhaps don't think about Commonwealth issues every day is exactly how one does define <coughs> the criteria for membership. There are traditional criteria, which, as Matthew said, look to the past rather than the future, uh, a character some connection with an existing member, the acceptance of the, uh, of the uh, Queen Elizabeth II as head of the Commonwealth, the English language, uh, usage uh, well, which uh, uh, at least in terms of commonwealth gatherings so you don't have of commonwealth gatherings which is a very distinctive feature of such international gatherings but if the commonwealth I mean if one was to say well anybody who's, any country which subscribes to, uh, to the commonwealth values democracy and good governance and respect for human rights is eligible for admission. It seems to me you might get to the point where you've diluted the commonwealth to a point where it's very, very difficult to see, you know, what is, uh, you know, the, the defining um, value if you life which keeps it together. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, Matthew mentioned Algeria. You know, I mean, if, I mean, obviously, you know, if, if one was to admit Algeria, for example, then it's very hard to see where you would draw <laughs> the line. And, um... I mean, it seems to me you know, that maybe the Commonwealth ought to say, well, we we, we can ex- perhaps expand. Perhaps countries like Timor, for example, which have a you know do have the sort of special needs which the Commonwealth seems particularly respond to. But um, I wonder whether he has any sense of uh, where that line might be drawn. Thank you.
0: Do you want to take those two. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, um, thanks very much. Now, Cameroon is a country I know very well. I've spent a fair bit of time there, and um, we had a very senior member of my staff who was from Cameroon and tragically died uh, earlier this year, and we'd worked a lot on Cameroon uh, together, in particular um, on um, helping to develop, and it's still a work in progress, the Independent Elections Commission, So Cameroon, like Mozambique, only joined the Commonwealth in the mid-1990s. But in both cases, I think fairly successfully, what we have worked through our Commonwealth engagement is to improve the conditions in those countries so that the differing factions can work more closely together and can integrate more closely together. We're not about, in the Commonwealth, seeing countries uh, split up and... um, the, all the uh, challenges that that, uh, that that can lead to um, but rather we're we are looking at creating more just structures so that those who are minorities feel that they can have their voice expressed and that they can aspire even to the presidency of the countries of which they are citizens um, and that's been the focus on our work in Cameroon and I believe with some success Um uh, former Prime Minister Joe Clark of Canada and the Canadian government in particular have invested quite a lot in that we've worked with the judiciary we've worked with um, human rights commissions as well as the election commission and we've worked on issues like the prisons and we will continue uh, to do so on um, this whole issue of membership it's a very, very good uh, question that Peter Slin uh, poses um, how do you define it and and what are you after in membership of the Commonwealth and while we do take the view as expressed in the speech I have delivered for the Secretary General that we need to be open we do not see a great future growth in Commonwealth membership rather we see us engaging more as strategic partners with with other organisations and I have in mind a couple of years ago the um, chairman of the African Union came to see us and I, I, as the Secretary General was away I received him and uh, we had quite a discussion. And he made it clear, he said, you know, I really enjoy this engagement with the Commonwealth but I wouldn't want you taking having a membership that just mirrors mine. And he was quite right because, you know, there are countries of Francophone Africa who have very different sorts of traditions. Um, and there are two things I would say. One thing I would emphasise is the use of English language means more than that phrase might suggest. And one thing we've been quite clear on and the membership committee is quite clear on, that we should never, ever have translation in the Commonwealth. When we meet in the Commonwealth, we must have a common language of communication because that's what helps us engage very informally. Um, You need it in an organisation like the United Nations, but the Commonwealth has to have its own unique place. So... When a country wants to, to join, that has to be a factor. Now, when the President of Rwanda comes um, to join, or the President of East Timor, those are people who are so fluent in English, whose countries are becoming much more sort of Anglophone in their environment, that, that they fit well. But English means something else. It actually means this university, those of you sitting in a lecture theatre Uh, like this, communicating in English. It's the way in which you're educated. It's the way in which your judiciary uh, functions. This is one of the issues we've worked through in Cameroon is in fact anglicising if I might put it that way a bit the legal system and the other systems so that um, some of those principles which are so important in our legal and educational traditions are things we hold in common across the Commonwealth. And finally there's a very practical consideration One of the strengths of the Commonwealth is the retreat of heads of government where they do sit around in a big room. It was what Sonny Ramphal, I think it was, called it as seminars for leaders, rather like a university seminar. And This is what we'll be doing in ten days' time in in Kampala. These heads will sit in the room with no officials, which officials get very nervous about. But having been one of the few people who do go in and out of the room because someone at at the end of the day has to actually write down what they say, Um, You know, leaders love this and they love just being with one another in this way and being able to exchange views without being on the record and it leads to some very productive dialogues on issues like trade as happened in Malta and we will hope it will happen in some other areas like addressing extremism or climate change in the coming uh, Kampala. So for that to work, the leaders need to have this common language of communication and ease between one another as well, so I think in practice the Commonwealth will probably not grow much beyond where it is. But what we will do is is have more engagement with other uh, with other regional organisations, and we'll work together more and more with the African Union, the European Union, the Pacific Islands Forum on common areas of endeavour.
0: Thank you. I think we'll take one yes, uh, another round of questions. There's, a lady at the front, gentlemen at the back.
3: Thanks, just a very quick question Josephine from the Foreign Policy mm-hmm. Centre I wonder if Mr Newhouse might indulge us and let us know what he, who he thinks is one of the favourites to succeed <laughs> <on this film. laughs> Great question the there, um,
0: well,
4: My question is a very grassroots question um, the awareness of the general public Uh, to the existence of the Commonwealth. Um, Unfortunately, the Commonwealth Institute in South Kent has closed, I believe. Are there any plans to open a similar kind of thing, please?
0: Do we have any any more questions? I'll Um, take those two. There's a gentleman at the front. Can I just add a sort of interjection of my own? I mean, you, you talked about half the world being women. You also mentioned the work of Amartya Sen. I, mean, I wish it was the case that half the world was women. Uh, but as Amartya Sen has reminded us, there are 100 million missing women in the world mm-hmm. today. And about 50 or 60 million of those women are missing from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Uh, and I wonder to what extent the Commonwealth is going to be pushing these sorts of issues around gender in, in those three countries. That's a question.
5: Thank you. I'm an LC media student from China. And just uh, when you were speaking about the membership to the Commonwealth, I was thinking Hong Kong is a former British colony and also a special administrative region of China. Does it uh, qualify for membership to the Commonwealth? And if not, uh, does do you, do you work with the Hong Kong SAR government, or does it have a role in the Commonwealth? Second. Uh, China's involvement in countries in Africa and South America uh, carries much strategic importance for many national governments. And when the Commonwealth talks to the Chinese government on these issues, on its involvement in Africa, what is the Commonwealth's stance? Thank you
1: well thanks for those Now, Josephine uh, was trying to ask me the trickiest question of course this could be my future boss we're talking about so I have to be really careful um, all I can say at the moment is there are three candidates two of which are nominated by governments and one who um, is sort of self nominated but could be nominated by a government any time up to the election takes place in Kampala and um, So the two nominated candidates are the Indian High Commissioner here, Kamala Sharma, who's well known to many people um, and is a very effective uh, diplomat, Um, has also been, um, as well as being permanent representative in both New York and uh, Geneva for his uh, country, has also uh, been the UN Special Representative in East Timor, Timor Timor-Leste, so has has a very strong background and has been very engaged with the Commonwealth, while... He has been here. The other um, contender is the Foreign Minister of Malta who I've just been with. He's been chairing the Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group. Um, he's been a very active also in the Commonwealth and has been, both have been working extremely hard. Uh, so it's a real competition between the two of them. And I think the good thing um, um, is that both of them and the third candidate who is Dr Mohan Cole, for the Commonwealth Business Council uh, all know the Commonwealth very well so whoever we get will be someone who is very committed to its values and who will hit the ground running and I think it's a good thing because at the uh, beginning of this year we actually seem to have no candidate for Secretary General I suppose there's only a slight disappointment amongst some of us that there's been no woman candidates so um, uh, and there's never been a woman leader of the Commonwealth so far, but that's possibly, that must be something still for the future. Uh, on the Commonwealth Institute, yes, I think it was a great loss. It did do a great um, service. Um, it's now being wound up. Um, the funds uh, will be used for education in Commonwealth uh, countries through a Cambridge-based institution. Now, whether something like the Commonwealth Institute um, emerges again... Um, I don't know. There, I mean, it would once again be largely a sort of civil society um, thing if it does. I know there are some ideas that people have of a sort of more, culturally, uh, more cultural type um, museum um, which would be along the lines of um, the sort of the different groups from Commonwealth countries and the contribution they've made to Britain. Um, the sad thing about the Commonwealth Institute was that it it just hadn't sort of gelled with a lot of modern ways of doing things and that's always the challenges for mu- essentially museums in, in the modern world so you know we, we, we certainly uh, mourn it's, it's lost, there's a hole there to be filled how it should best be filled in the modern world is, uh, and then in modern London in particular because this was a London based thing is something I think we need to work on for the future I think it's very challenging to ask about the missing women and you're absolutely right to do that Um, it is an issue that particularly exercises um, a a gender area and it's a matter of concern Um, it's a sensitive one though um, and it's it's not one that's uh, centrally on the agenda I have to say at this coming it may be one that in the future a lot more work needs to be done to change attitudes and I think the Commonwealth is about changing attitudes on some things of course we're very We're the sort of organisation that is naturally uh, very committed to diversity and uh, traditions and so forth. But there are some attitudes um, that in order to advance people's human rights and and, and better better life um, do need to to be changed. And there's a a change of attitude issue that's required there. Um, On Hong Kong, it doesn't qualify for membership, nor would the Chinese be very happy with us if we even went there. But it does give us a historic link with China and we certainly are engaging more with China and I believe, just like we engage with the US, um, not that I would ever think or suggest that should be a Commonwealth member, um, (laughs) I I, I think we will engage more with China and certainly we have more and more interests in common in places like Africa. And as I mentioned in the speech, um, there have been some areas of practical cooperation, for example, on debt management already.
0: I hope I'm not silencing anybody. Was there anybody else that particularly wished to ask a question? If not, I'd like to thank you all for, for coming here tonight and for the questions that we have had. But I'd most especially like to thank you, Matthew, for stepping in at short notice, particularly when your own schedule is, is so very busy. And thank you very much for the talk that you've given us this evening.
4: Thank you.